is a joy to be here this morning. Your worship has filled my heart, your singing, uh, and so I'm already full. Hopefully I could add a little something to our gathering to encourage you in the Lord. I pastor New Life Fellowship Church in Queens, New York City, a church very similar uh, to yours in that it has over 75 nations represented in a community where 123 languages are spoken. Uh, in an area where National Geographic called the most diverse zip code in the United States. And so being here uh, is a gift uh, uh, to worship with you. I feel like I'm at home. Uh, and today I want to focus on a particular passage of scripture out of Psalm 27, a scripture uh, that my grandfather had me memorize when I became a follower of Jesus uh, at 19 years of age. Uh, about three years ago, uh, and uh, no, some 24 years ago, uh, and uh, a passage that has meant a lot to me, and I trust that the Lord will speak to your hearts uh, as we look at this passage, as we reflect on it, on what it means to dwell with God, what it means to behold the beauty of God. And so Psalm 27, you can follow along on the screen. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war shall rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing, somebody say one thing. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I want to focus on verse 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, breathe on us. Open our ears that we may hear what you want us to hear. Open our eyes that we may see what you want us to see. Open our hearts that we would receive every gift you have for us this day. We pray these things in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. amen. I want to tell a little bit about my story so that you get to know me a little bit. And then I want to dive into Psalm 27. I became a follower of Jesus at 19 years of age. And that was significant because I did not grow up in the church, although from time to time I would visit church with my grandparents. My father and mother were not church goers. They were quite indifferent towards the things of faith, quite indifferent towards the things of church. But as a child, as a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, they would send me periodically to church with my grandparents, a small Pentecostal church called Arca de Salvación, Ark of Salvation. And they would send me to this church, and I used to think that they were really interested in my spiritual development, but it turns out that the reason they sent me to that church was because for three and four-hour services, because it was a Pentecostal church, you get good child care. Amen, somebody. And so you, you, you could get a lot done in three hours, a lot done in four hours. You could go grocery shopping and, and watch a movie and, and just hang out. And so they would say, go to that church, that, that, the, the, the Spanish Pentecostal church. That's the one we want you to go to. And so I would go to this church as a child. 
thinking and believing that Jesus was Puerto Rican. And, uh, and they called him Jesus. They said, todo lo puedo en Cristo que me fortalece. They said everything in Spanish. And so I thought Jesus was Puerto Rican. To this day, I believe he has a little bit of Puerto Rican in him. <laughs> He must have a little bit of Puerto Rican in him. And so I would go to this church and learn about the power of God. I would go to this church and learn about the holiness of God. But after a few years, I was not really understanding much. There was a language barrier. And so at 12 years old, I told my parents, I asked my parents, can I stop going to that church? And they said, you don't have to go anymore. And it was like I was saved at that moment. <laughs> Saved from the church. And so I stopped going to church for about five or six years, but found myself back in the church as a 17-year-old. And the reason I found myself back in church was because I started dating a pastor's daughter. I feel the spirit moving now. And so that'll get you back into church very quickly. And so the pastor said, the only way you can date my daughter is if you come to church. I said, I'm there, pastor. I'll, I'll be there. He didn't say what time I had to come into the church. And so I'd come in the last 10, 15 minutes of the service. I'd sit in the back so he could not see me. But every single Sunday, he'd ask me the question, Rich, what'd you think about our service? I would say, it was wonderful. <laughs> what was it about? Jesus, <laughs> the Holy Spirit, sin, heaven. That was my answer every single week for about three to four weeks. And then he, he caught up to my schemes that I was sneaking in at the end of this service. I would go to this church, but for about two to three years, learning about God, but then the relationship came to an end, and I was heartbroken as a 19-year-old, heartbroken, rocking from Queens to Brooklyn after the relationship came to an end. And I remember arriving at my home in Brooklyn, seeing my father on the couch, watching an NFL football game, and he was coming off of a hangover. My mother was cooking in the kitchen. And I asked him, where's our um, eldest of five? Where's, where's my siblings? Where's Jason? Where's Laura? Where's Michelle? Where's Melissa? They said, oh, they're at this church, the church, Arca de Salvacion, that church I used to go to as a child. They're at the church because there's an evangelist that's there, and they were invited. We were not a church-going family, but my siblings decided to go to church that day. And so I thought, maybe I can go. Maybe I'm all depressed. Maybe someone could pray for me. Someone encourage me. And so I walk into the church, and this church is having a revival. Typically, there's 30 to 40 people at this church. There are about 90 to 100 people there. It's a long, narrow church. And as I'm walking in, they're at part of the worship song where they're singing about the authority of Jesus to cast out demons. That in the name of Jesus and in the presence of de Jesus, demons cannot stay. And so they're up to that point in the song when I walk into the service. And I'm thinking, I hope they're not talking about me here. I, is this a welcome space here? Can I, do I belong here? And so I walk into the church, sit towards the back of the service. And about 10 minutes later, my parents walk in. Now, this was very surprising because they never went to church. What even made it more surprising was the way my father walked in. He came in with sneakers and no socks and pajama pants and a tank top and a jacket and a hat. Very strange. And I said, Dad, why did you come to church? And why did you come to church like that? And he would say to me, when you walked out of the house, I heard two words. I don't know if it was audible or inaudible. But I heard two words, and the two words were, follow him. And I don't know if those words meant follow Jesus or follow Rich, but because Rich was going to church to see Jesus, he put two and two together and just followed me into the church. And he sat in the back, and a preacher got up. A 
Puerto Rican preacher with alligator shoes and matching alligator belt. He had it going on. <laughs> and he got up and he preached out of the book of Ezekiel 37 about a valley of dry bones. And he looked out into the congregation and said, some of you, you used to be living, used to be like an army that was vitality and life to you, but now you are desolate, you're fractured, you're dry. And just like the prophet Ezekiel prophesied life to those dry bones that would become a living army, the preacher looked into the congregation just as I'm looking into your eyes. Some of your lives have been dry and fragmented and broken and lifeless, but God wants to breathe life into you. And this preacher got up and said, who wants the breath of God? Who wants to be alive in God? Who wants to receive what God has for them? And he made an invitation. Who wants to receive the breath of God? And one by one, family members began to respond. My sister responded, and another sister responded, and my other sister responded, and my brother responded, and my mother responded, and father responded, and I responded, and an uncle responded, and an aunt responded, and a cousin responded, and another cousin responded, another uncle responded, another aunt responded, another cousin responded. I'm not done. Another uncle responded. Another aunt responded. (laughs) On that one night in 1999, in the summer of a small church in Brooklyn in New York City, 15 family members came to life in Jesus Christ. I like to say that God's presence was so powerful that day that if my dog was there, my dog would have said, can I receive... The Lord Jesus Christ. He was a bad dog. His name was Milo. He was a chihuahua. He had many demons inside of him. Just a, that's a bad dog. He needed salvation as well. We got home. We were weeping at the altar. We've never shown that kind of emotion to one another. And so when we got home, it was very awkward. No one's making any eye contact. It was very awkward. And so we said, what should we do next? We said, let's go back. Let's go back again. And what happened a couple of days after that has begun to shape my life as a follower of Jesus. You see, down the block from me, my grandfather lived there, and I remember going into his bedroom, and he was sitting in his bed, and he asked me to sit down next to him. You can put a picture of my grandfather on the screen with me. I had hair back then. Uh, It was very nice. Um, And I remember sitting with my grandfather, and he told me, you had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Something happened in your soul. But in order to sustain this, you're going to have to learn how to dwell in God. You're going to have to learn how to behold God. That what you got there on that Sunday is wonderful, but I want to disciple you and train you for what happens between Sundays. How do you dwell in God? How do you have a life with God? And he had me memorize this verse, the entire chapter for that matter of Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And he said, you're going to have to learn verse 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, to dwell and to behold. To dwell and to behold. To have a life of prayer, of being with God. And this is what Jesus over and over invites his disciples to. For example, in John chapter 15, as Jesus is bringing his ministry to an end, he tells his disciples that they must learn how to abide in him. 
Abide in me and I in you. Remain in me. And that word abide, remain, shows up in the Gospel of John, not 10, not 20, not 30, not 40, not 50, 63 times in the Gospel of John, that word abide shows up. Dwell with me. Remain with me. Behold me. And in order to live the kind of life that God has called us to, we must learn how to dwell in him, how to behold his beauty. In other words, Sundays are not just going to do it for us. We need a life with God. I was thinking, the disciples of Jesus, they spent three years with him. And if they spent just on an average eight uh, hours with him on a given day, eight hours over 365 days, over three years, would be about 8,760 hours that his disciples spent with him. And after all that time that they had with Jesus, they still had significant gaps, significant issues. They spent all those hours with Jesus and still had issues. One Sunday morning is not going to do it. We must learn to dwell with God and to behold the beauty of God. And so David is our instructor today. He begins by saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. The first three verses in Psalm 27, David is talking about a battle, that we're in a battle. And we know what it's like to be in a battle, to be in a psychological battle, a relational battle, a social battle, a spiritual battle. When we turn on the news, when we look at our society, we see there's a lot of battles going on. But perhaps the biggest battle that we have as it relates to our relationship with God is battle for our attention. The battle for our attention. We see David is surrounded by all kinds of forces, all kinds of enemies pulling him away from God. And then there's a shift in verse 4 where the imagery moves from David being on the battlefield to David being in the sanctuary. And we're able to see how David is able to withstand the pressures, how David is able to withstand the battle. Amen. How David is able to withstand the forces around him. The only way that he's able to withstand the forces around him is because he's learned how to do something. He's learned how to dwell. He's learned how to behold. And so he says, one thing, look how quick the transition is. One thing have I desired of the Lord. I just want to do one thing. I want to dwell with him. I want to dwell with him. One of the most important things we can learn to do as followers of Jesus is dwell in the simple presence of God. On Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, to create space in our day, where we're simply dwelling in the presence of God. Because transformation happens when we dwell in the presence of God. When I think about the word dwell, there's there's an image that comes to mind. Every morning, I make my wife a cup of tea. Amen. I make her a cup of tea. I'm not too much of a tea drinker. I'm more coffee drinker and all that. But I make her a cup of tea every morning. And so this image of tea is something that I think is really important to get at what David is getting at with dwelling. Because you see, there are at least two ways to make tea. We're going to get deep now. Stay with me. 
The first way of making tea is to be a dipper, where you take the tea bag and you dip in and you dip out, and you dip in and you dip out. And you dip in and you dip out. And when the tea is to your liking, if you want to get really sophisticated with it, you, you wrap the tea bag around a spoon, you press down, you discard it, you enjoy your cup of tea. I'm a dipper. When I drink tea, I'm a dipper. I dip in and I dip out. But when I thought about drinking tea, I thought this is quite a metaphor for the spiritual life. Because it's very easy to dip into church and out of church. Dip into prayer and out of prayer. Dip into the Bible and out of the Bible. You're, 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 you're dipping, and when you're dipping, transformation is done by your willpower. But there's another way of making tea. I feel the Holy Spirit. It's to be a dweller. To just let the tea bag sit there. <laughs> to let it dwell there. To let it steep there. And, and when you just leave it alone, you just observe that transformation begins to happen right before your eyes without you doing anything. You see, when you're dipping in and out, that's, that's work. It's work on your shoulder. You're, you're dipping in and you're dipping out. But when you're dwelling, the power of God begins to transform the, the tea that you're drinking. Let me, I, listen to this. I remember having a, 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 a breakfast with a friend of mine and I had coffee and he had tea and he was dipping in and dipping out and dipping in and dipping out. And I said, brother, why don't you just let it dwell there? <laughs> and he said, because if I let it just dwell there, the tea might get too strong. And I said, my Lord. He said, what happened? I said, God's talking right now. Because when you dwell in the presence of God, the presence of God gets strong. And transformation begins to happen beyond your willpower. God begins to work on a level that you cannot manufacture, that you cannot manipulate, that you cannot work up. God begins to work in your life. And what begins to happen when you dwell in God is you find yourself doing in God's power what you could not do in your own strength. You find yourself forgiving when you used to be resentful. You find yourself courageous when you used to be fearful. You find yourself generous when you used to be stingy. Why? Because the presence of God is at work. And so David says, I just want to do one thing. I want to dwell in the presence of God. And then David brings another word that I want to emphasize for our time. Not just dwell, but I want to behold. A beautiful word. I want to behold the beauty of the Lord. Now, this is so important, that word behold, because whatever we behold, we ultimately become. Whatever we behold, we ultimately become. David wants to behold the beauty of the Lord. And here's the truth of our lives. All of us know how to behold. To be human is to know how to behold. We behold our computers. We behold our phones. That our eyes are fixed upon the beauty of the smartphone. 
that we have our eyes fixed and transfixed on these things. And I don't say that as judgmentalism. I say that as a fellow struggler on the journey. This is me and my daughter here. Just, this is bad parenting, but we're just checking our Facebook there together. We all know how to behold. The question is not whether we can behold or not. The question is, are we beholding the right thing? Is our eyes fixed in the right direction? Are we beholding the beauty of the Lord? And so the question is, what does it mean to behold? How do we begin to have a life that beholds the beauty of God, enabling us to receive the kind of formation and transformation that the Lord would have us to live into? And what I wanna do for our time is just offer three invitations for us. What does it mean to behold God, to have a life with God in prayer that between Sundays, I, I love the worship here. I was lifting my voice as my heart has been filled to the, to the brim because of the, the songs that we've sung, the praises that we've lifted up. But what happens on Tuesday when the worship team is not there to lead you? What happens on Wednesday when the pastor's not there to encourage you? How do we have a first-hand spirituality with Jesus Christ? One of the challenges of our world and within the church is that we often have a second-hand spirituality where we live off the spirituality of someone else. We live off the spirituality of, of the worship team, live off the spirituality of the sermon, live off the spirituality of the small group. But how do we cultivate a firsthand spirituality with Jesus Christ? We must learn to dwell and to behold. What are the invitations towards that end? Firstly, it requires us to befriend silence, to make friends, with silence. We live in a society that's overly stimulated. We're always waiting for the next experience, the next thing, the next good feeling. But one of the ways that we grow in our relationship with God is by the simple act of making friends with silence. There's something about beholding God in silence, closing our eyes and allowing our bodies and our souls to rest in his presence, where transformation begins to happen. Much of our spirituality is often based on a sense of transactionalism. I say particular words, God does particular things. And I love intercession. I love prophetic prayer. I love the ways God responds to the cries of his people. But if we're only relating to God based on what God can give us, we are now using God towards our end as opposed to living a life in which we are enjoying communion with God as an end. And so one of the ways we do that is by befriending silence. I think about a story uh, regarding Mother Teresa. Someone asked Mother Teresa one day, what does she say to God when she prays? And she said, nothing, I listen. And the person said, well, what does God say then? And she said, nothing, God listens. 
And the, the reporter couldn't understand what she was saying. She was saying, I'm sharing simple presence with God. That's how I behold and dwell in God. And one of the ways that you can often measure how familiar you are, familiar you are with someone is your level of comfort in being silent with them. You all seem like a delightful lot. And I've just been using all kinds of words that I don't use in the United States here, but a delightful lot here. <laughs> but if we took a long car ride together, it'd be really awkward if there were extended periods of silence. Why? Because we don't know each other. It'd be, it'd be strange for us to have long intervals of silence because when you don't know anyone, the silence can feel awkward. But when you know someone, when I'm taking a long car ride with my wife, we can have long intervals of just being in each other's presence. What does it say about our lives? When we don't make any space for God in the simple silence of being, it might be that we're not as familiar with God as we think we are. We are invited to be still. And yet this is so hard. I remember we were at a, at a church, our congregation, and we had invited about an 80-year-old uh, man of God, a holy man of God. And he came into our church to speak that day. And during the worship, we were singing the song out of Psalm 46, I will be still and know that you are God. A beautiful song. And at the end of I Will Be Still and Know That You Are God, we sang the next song. And at the end of the service, I saw him greeting people after service, and I thought he was just going to be so delighted by our worship. It was very different from what he was accustomed to. And he said, Rich, can I ask you a question? You all sang I Will Be Still and Know That You Are God, and then you were never still. Why don't you practice what you sing? And I thought, why don't you go home, old man? That's what I, I didn't, uh, New York, it is a New York thing. And I, I didn't say that, I didn't say that. Uh, but, but he got at something. That it's very easy to practice or to, to sing what we don't practice. To preach what we don't practice. But we are invited to behold God requires us to be friends silent. Secondly, it requires us to normalize boredom. I want to, this is a sermon that the Holy Spirit, I pray, will get your attention on Thursday. And by boredom, what I mean is this, that prayer often can be uneventful, that you don't see what's happening in the moment. But it's only when you look back in retrospect that you see how God has been moving. And I want to let you know that the greatest moments of transformation are not when you're feeling good. The greatest moments of transformation is not when you're feeling the goosebumps and the God bumps. The greatest moment of transformation is not necessarily when everyone is raising their voices together. The greatest moments of transformation is when you feel nothing and you stay with Jesus. That's when transformation begins to happen on a level that God wants to work at. When you don't feel like praying and you pray, oh, the Holy Ghost is working inside of you. When you don't feel like giving and you give, that's when God is working. Some of the greatest work that God does is the work that happens when you don't feel it. Yeah. And so I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, whenever you feel like, oh, nothing's happening here. No, God's just getting started. But in ways that you might not be able to discern with your feelings and discern with your senses, but your spirit can discern this. And so to dwell with God, to behold God, 
requires us to normalize boredom. But lastly, it's this. And I want to encourage you with this. What does it mean to behold God, to have a life of beholding God? This all emerges out of pure grace of God, not out of obligation. This is pure grace of God. We're able to behold when we remember that God is always beholding you with eyes of love. The story of our lives, the story of humanity is we are a people that are marked by sin. And because we are a people marked and fractured by sin, we, our gaze is often everywhere except beholding God. We behold all kinds of other things in a given day. Our minds and our hearts are so distracted. But one thing you need to remember is no matter how distracted your mind and your heart is, God's eyes are always fixed on you. God is always beholding you with eyes of love. In other words, whenever we behold God, we are responding to God's gracious act of always beholding us. We don't get God to behold us. We respond to God's beholding of us. And this came to mind one day in my son's school, my son, Nathan. I remember seeing my, there was a day in New York where it's called bring your uh, father to school day. And so I walked into the school, my, my, you know, I want to support my son, be with my son in that space. And there were other fathers there and, and they had their uniforms on. They were really prepared for that. I wasn't prepared for that. They had their police officer uniforms on, their business suits and all that. They had presentations, these fathers. I mean, very impressive. And, and I thought I should have brought my Bible with me. And so, uh, <laughs> and so I walk in and, and for, for little children, my son was in the first grade, for, for, for him to be in that space to see your parents, it's a bit different. It's, it's awkward. It's weird to see your parent in the same classroom as you. And my son was just so awestruck that I was in his classroom that he couldn't get his eyes off of me. He was so happy that I was there that he began to behold me. I want to show you a picture of him beholding me. That, that was him beholding me. <laughs> that was the exact moment where he was beholding me. And when I looked in his direction, I saw him looking at me that way, and I thought... Pay attention, son. Just, uh, just pay, pay attention here. <laughs> but he would not stop beholding me. And it got to a point where I began to behold him. And our eyes met. And our smiles met. And there was a beautiful moment of intimacy, me with my son. Beholding him, beholding me. And for a moment, which felt like a lifetime, it might have just been 10 seconds or so, but it felt like an eternity a space of shared presence with one another, I thought, this is what it means that God is beholding us. When God looks at you, God smiles upon you. God's grace is showering you right now. God loves you with an everlasting love. I know you haven't been praying the way you want to pray and, and you haven't been reading your Bible the way you read your Bible and, and you haven't been giving the way you want to give, but I want to encourage you, God is beholding you with eyes of love. It's not that when you pray on a good day, you have a good day of prayer that God beholds you. 
And then when you forget to pray, God doesn't look at you. No, when you pray and when you don't pray, God's beholding you. When you read your Bible, you don't read your Bible, God's beholding you. When you give and when you don't give, God be, but here's what God's asking. Would you return the gaze? Would you look upon my beauty? Would you see my face? Would you return my gracious, gracious initiative towards you? And that's what it means to dwell in God, that we respond to the God who's always beholding you with eyes of love. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Let me continue. For in time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted above my enemies, round about me. Therefore shall I offer praises in his tabernacle of joy. I will sing. Yes. I will sing praises to the Lord. 